Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling is reminding businesses of the Curb to Compost program, which allows businesses, restaurants to have food waste collection. And this is an important next step in your business's or restaurants recycling program. You're tuned in to episode number 174 of the Jackson Hole Connection, recording in the not-so-sleepy town of Jackson Hole in rural western Wyoming. Thank you, everybody, who is tuned in today. I'm so happy you have found us and are joining us. Remember, for other people to enjoy this podcast, get out there and share this podcast, however you choose. Support for this episode comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling. And do you want to be a better recycler? Well, guess what? There is an app for that. Of course there is, because there's an app for just about everything. It's called the Recycle Coach app, now available to Jackson Hole locals and visitors. An additional support for this podcast comes from the Jackson Hole Marketplace, a little market with a ton to offer. Just go visit jhmarketplace.com to peruse our intentionally curated gift basket ideas. And welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stephan Clark Abrams, your host. A few side notes that I have today is one is I do love listening to other people's podcasts. One that I listen to every day is called The Daily Stoic. That is by Ryan Holiday. If you're looking for something to challenge your mind and you're thinking a little bit, look it up. The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. And as a parent, I also read a daily journal called The Daily Dad. It also has a podcast, The Daily Dad, but I like receiving every day in my inbox the little newsletter, Ezine, that is submitted each day. The Daily Dad gets me thinking about how I can be a better dad each day. These podcasts and e-newsletters are not supporting this podcast, but it's something important to me and I wanted to share with those people who are listening. And thank you for listening and tuning in. Get out there and share this podcast. Remember, we all have a story to share and that's what this podcast is about. It's about us sharing stories, learning from each other, and just thinking about how we all live the life of struggle. But as we live the life of struggle, we live it together and we can be successful together. Remember, sharing stories allows us to learn and grow so we can live full lives. My guest today is Dr. Richard Sugden. Dr. Sugden is a veteran. He's a doctor, an entrepreneur, and a community member with enormous impact. Rich's connection to Jackson Hole started back as a young lad with his parents who were set out for adventure. And later in life, Rich's connection to Jackson Hole circles back with his own family, securing roots right here in the valley. Always on the go, as a practicing physician, Rich and others added and improved critical medical care for our community and also the surrounding communities, which needed the services that Rich and his partners were offering. Using the skills and knowledge learned while in the Navy and from school, Rich influenced improving so much in our Valley. The lives impacted are numerous and the services touched by Rich are still in existence today and will continue to operate well into the future. 
Rich, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's um, it's a, quite an honor and delight to have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you. Well, thanks. I've heard your background through other people, but um, I would love for you to share with us today. What were you doing before you came to Jackson Hole? So where did you grow up? And But then also, how did you find this magical place called Jackson Hole as well? Okay. Well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my dad was a naval officer uh, shortly after I was born in, in Orinda, California. And uh, he was a very avid outdoorsman, skier. He and some friends built a little lodge at Sugar Bowl up in the Sierras uh, for skiing. And uh, around 1947, he decided that it would. he'd heard about Jackson Hole and uh, thought that Jackson might be a good place to get skiing started because they really weren't doing very much here. He had a friend that had been here a couple of times. So he and this friend and my mom uh, bought a little dude ranch in Kelly. Uh, Dad ran that uh, and mom ran it. She was the cook and bottle washer and the waitress. And dad took care of the stock and taking people hunting and camping and fishing and doing all the things that are fun to do in Jackson. So we lived there from 47 until the Korean War broke out. And then dad went back in the Navy and we left and traveled all over the place. Uh, Dad's last duty station in the Navy was as the assistant naval attache in Rome, Italy. So I lived in Rome for three years, Um, came back, settled in the San Francisco Bay Area again in Los Altos, went to Los Altos High School, Uh, met my wife when she was a freshman in high school and I was a junior and uh, went from there. Uh, I wanted to go to Stanford, but Stanford took a look at my B plus average and said, well, maybe you better prove you can survive here. So I went to Exeter for a year and did a postgraduate year at Exeter in New Hampshire, hardest I've ever worked in my entire life. Came back, um, got about a C, barely a C average at Exeter, was accepted at Stanford and uh, did very well there. And then went from there on to medical school at Baylor. Uh, a friend of mine that lived down the road got me interested in medicine. I worked as an orderly at the Palo Alto Stanford Hospital for several years. Went to Baylor, uh, graduated from Baylor in 1969, did my internship, and then went into the Navy uh, during Vietnam. So I was either going to enlist or get drafted. So I signed up for the Navy flight surgery program, went to Pensacola for six months, um, got trained as a flight surgeon, got to fly, uh, and then went from there. Did, uh, our assignments were based on our ranking in, the, in our class, and there were about 12 or 14 of us in the flight surgery class, and I ranked fairly close to the top, so I got to pick a, a good assignment. I went to the Navy's test pilot school and test center at Patuxent River, Maryland, spent four years there. Originally, I was going to go into obstetrics and gynecology when I finished my internship if I was going to go directly into residency. But after doing OBGYN plus some surgery, some pediatrics, adult medicine in the Navy, I decided, well, Baylor was going to start a family medicine residency. So I came back to Baylor with two other residents who'd been in the Air Force uh, who were in my class originally. And we started the Baylor Family Medicine Residency for a little over two years. And then because I'd lived here in Jackson uh, back in the 40s, I uh, originally, I was going to come back and take uh, over Dr. Crenshaw's OBGYN practice. He was going to retire about the time I was going to finish my residency. But um, I came back and, and did family medicine it, with a, a lot of obstetrics and gynecology in the, for the first 20, 25 years. So that's the story how we came back. 
Uh, our little place was called the Ramshorn Ranch in Kelly, and it's now the Teton Science School. Oh, is it? Okay. That's where I lived, 1947 to 1950. And when you came back here, when you were practicing medicine, is that where you lived too? No. No, that, dad, uh, dad sold to his partner when he went back in the Navy. Uh, his partner sold to the park, and then the mm. park leased the ranch to first to Katie Starrett, who had the elbow ranch there for a, a few years, and then she passed away. And then the people with the, I'm trying to remember his name, that uh, bought it, and it became the Teton Science School. I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, it's all good. That's where it, that's kind of, that's the history. And when, so when you and your wife moved here to practice, for you to practice medicine and to live here, what year was that? 1975. Okay. And that house you see behind me, uh, we bought in 1970 from a fellow named Nick Dietrich, who was a German immigrant that came here and raised Silver Fox. He bought a section at the end of Fish Creek Road and sold off pieces of it. And that was his cabin. Uh, it was a one bedroom cabin and we added on a couple of bedrooms to it but it was built in 1930 or early 30s. Well, it's nice to know that you and your family have been able to preserve it and keep it alive. Well, and I'm sitting right now in the, the homestead cabin, the original 1917 homestead cabin, which is my workshop. So that's where I'm sitting right now talking to you. And that was from Dietrich that homesteaded? It was his cabin? Oh, that, that was the people that homesteaded the original property Oh, okay. Dietrich, Dietrich moved here in, in the late 20s, 1928, 29, something like that, and bought and, that property. So when you moved here in 75 to practice medicine, what was the quality of care for this community? What was it like? It was good. Um, Don McLeod had just retired. We had uh, a general surgeon, John Batson, was here. Um, Dr. Melian was here in family medicine, Dr. Little in pediatrics. I was the second family physician along with Dr. Melian. Um, we had a pathologist, a radiologist, um, and an internist. Uh, the care was good. I mean, for a small town, it, the hospital here was exactly the same size as the Naval Hospital in Production River, Maryland. So I came from... Mm a small hospital to another small hospital. Although in, in between, I practiced at a huge medical center. At the Texas Medical Center in Houston, we had something like 15,000 beds in 12 hospitals in a medical center. That's a big facility compared to huge. <laughs> what was here. And what services did not exist uh, for basic care when you came here that you over time you and other people saw a need for and started developing well one of the first things i got involved with was emergency medical care uh there were four people at the time covering the emergency room which included the radiologist and the pathologist uh the pathologist had a couple of years of general surgery training so uh he was capable of taking care of most things and the the radiologist was skilled at that and they could always call one of us to take care of things that they couldn't cope with. But there were four people covering it. And when I arrived, uh, Friday was the day that wasn't covered. And so they asked me if I wanted to cover Friday. And I said, sure. And then I discovered that's rodeo day. <laughs> I was busy on many Fridays during the summer. And then we all shared call on the weekends. But the thing we didn't have was an ambulance service. We had an ambulance. Um, it was being driven by the maintenance workers at the hospital. 
they had no first aid training, no trauma training. They were basically just driving the ambulance and they would grab a nurse off the floor at the hospital to go uh, pick up a patient, whether it was a heart attack or um, automobile accident or a riding accident or a climbing accident. So the emergency medical services were, were barely minimum. Um, John Fagan was an orthopedic surgeon who practiced here, and he had bought the Teton Village Clinic. <clears throat> and he asked, uh, asked me, he said he had a physician's assistant that was going to come work with him at the clinic in the wintertime, but um, he wanted to know if I would supervise him uh, and could he work with me for the rest of the year in just general medical things. And this was a very talented fellow named Paul King. And Paul was a uh, special forces combat medic who'd had several tours in Vietnam, very well trained in trauma, very well trained in general medicine. And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to work with him. And uh, he said also when, when Paul was at the clinic, if something came in that wasn't uh, orthopedic, because John was at the Fagan was an orthopedist, uh, would I, you know, kind of help out there? And I said, sure. Well, we had patients that had bad head injuries. Well, let me back up before I get to the air ambulance, just about the, the regular ground ambulance. Um, and Paul and I decided very quickly that we could do better than that. So we started Teton County Emergency Medical Services, EMS. We held classes and we trained the, the uh, first we started off training the, the, the maintenance people. <laughs> okay. They were driving the ambulance, uh, training them to be first aid responders and then EMTs and uh, advanced EMTs. And then we also started training some of the nurses and then some of the volunteers in the community to come in and we hold, held classes. I think we had either two or three classes a year, at least at least two classes a year. And we gradually built up the staff, uh, improved the equipment on the ambulance. And then the other thing that we started working on was uh, the concept of a trauma team. Uh, when we arrived, uh, if somebody was badly injured in an auto accident, they waited until they got to the hospital before they called the surgeon or whoever else needed to come in and take care of that trauma patient, primarily the surgeon. And where I had trained, we had a very active trauma service at Baylor in Houston, and uh, everyone was in the ER. And if you needed a specialist like a neurosurgeon for an accident from the ambulance, the paramedics would call and say they had a bad head injury. They're going to need a neurosurgeon right away or a cardiovascular surgeon. Uh, they would call and they'd sit, the team would be ready when the patient arrived. And we thought we could do that here, and we did. And we got... Uh, Brent, what was Brent's last name? He was the head of the trauma service at Scripps. Brent Eastman hmm. helped us organize that. And uh, Dr. Batson, and then later on, another surgeon came in. Uh, they agreed to it. And we started the concept of a trauma team. So we got the, the ground ambulance service going. And then also, Paul and I served as the medical directors for the park ambulance service and coordinated that. So we got things on the ground going pretty well. But then we had the problems of having to take patients uh, elsewhere for major trauma like neurosurgery, neurosurgical trauma, bad head injuries, spinal injuries, things like that. And there was only, at that time, this would be, this would be the early 80s, there was only one air ambulance aircraft in Salt Lake. And if it was available, fine, uh, we could call it and they would come pick up the patient. But if it wasn't, which was frequently the case, we'd have to relay these patients by ground ambulance to Salt Lake. So four hours, five hours, maybe longer in the wintertime. And sometimes they didn't make it. So we decided I was, I was a pilot. I was, I was flying. We had an aircraft that we, we were using. So we decided to uh, start an air ambulance service, which was a major undertaking. Actually, our first air ambulance flight was uh, 
I, I would fly down to Big Piney to see OB patients. And I was down there and a lady went into premature labor with a very premature baby. And uh, Dr. Close at the time was the doctor there, who was a surgeon, uh, but he was mainly a GP. Um, he and I climbed to the airplane and the, my nurse at the time was an OB nurse, uh, Ruth Reed, and she had gone down with me. And so she was in the back with this lady in premature labor and we flew her to Salt Lake. That was our very first flight. That was before we even got the ambulance service going. But it was one of the things that prompted us to, this is not that difficult and mm-hmm. uh, we can do it. So we did it. And before even the ambulance was organized in the way that you and um, everybody who participated in that, what was, if somebody had some sort of traumatic injury, especially to the head, what was their you know, percentage of making it through that successfully if versus had, afterwards? Well, if they had a survivable injury, they generally survived. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a fairly small valley. I mean, we don't have to transport people very far from injuries. I remember one patient that was a, a young boy who was like 16, 17, that had gone up uh, Grove on, on elk hunting and decided to rattle up an elk and he had antlers and he thought the best place to do that from would be in a clump of bushes. And he was standing in the bushes, rattling up and then holding the antlers up and somebody shot him and was shot in the chest. And they managed to get him to the hospital. We managed to, to save him and he survived. Uh, we had good services. We had good, uh, good equipment. It just sometimes was difficult and it, was, it wasn't optimal. Mm-hmm. And when you started the air ambulance, did you have to modify your plane to, to be able to be in an air ambulance? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. So we decided to do it. Uh, I went out to the airport and uh, Jacksonville Aviation was owned by a family, uh, the Imesons. And I told them that we wanted to start an air ambulance service and we would appreciate their cooperation and that we would need service, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year because, you know, we didn't have regular working hours. We flew when we needed to and when we had to. And they said, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, why is that? They said, well, because we operate the air ambulance. And I said, well, I didn't know there was an air ambulance service. Well, yeah, we take uh, take the patient, put them in a little Cessna 182, and we'll grab a nurse from the hospital, and we'll fly them wherever they have to go. I said, no, that's not the kind of air ambulance we're talking about. We're talking about seriously ill and injured patients, heart attack patients, trauma patients. We need stretchers. We need oxygen. We need suction. We need well-trained air ambulance attendants. And they said, well, but we have the contract. And so I wound up buying Jackson Aviation and we started our air ambulance service. <laughs> and and I think it's fascinating that with how small of a town this is, especially back when you started it, that you being a, a doctor, you weren't aware that there was an air ambulance contract. <laughs> no. No, I'd never heard of them fl- ever flying a patient. But, you know, they they had flown some patients like that. I mean, if somebody, you know, had a bad injury to their hand or their foot or, you know, something that needed to go for like for plastic surgery, then, you know, they could fly in a little Cessna on it if the weather's good. And, you know, we needed to be able to fly day, night, instrument weather, you know, pretty much any time. We did over a thousand flights in 12 years. Never missed a flight. Never lost a patient. That's remarkable. That's um really remarkable for for our community and so, so how long did you own jackson hall aviation oh it was until i think the late 90s early 2000 i guess i have a business one thing i learned early is that doctors are not good business people so i hired a business manager and the business manager thought we were you know 
wasting too much time running that business and we weren't really making any money and we sold it just before the business aviation business jets took off oh <laughs> it was a real money maker after we sold it that's <laughs> uh, I guess um, if we all had a crystal ball, we would be in a different place, wouldn't we? Uh, isn't that true? But yeah. so what we did was we moved over to Driggs and uh, bought the, the fixed base operation there and called it Teton Aviation. Uh, and we've been operating out of there since doing you know, charter work, flight instruction, maintenance. Um, I'm interested to know at the time that you were running the fixed wing air ambulance program here, were there also, was there anybody operating a helicopter as well? well actually, we did. Was, you did? I was going over the history. Yeah, we did uh, 86, I think. Let me look. Uh, I can look in here because I have that. 1986, we added a Bell Jet Ranger. Ken Johnson was the helicopter pilot for the park for many, many years. And he had a company called Teton Rotors, I believe. And he had a Bell Jet Ranger. Um uh, and he joined forces with us, and he was the pilot that flew the helicopter. And we did a lot of backcountry stuff. We hauled a lot of people out of the backcountry. Mm -hmm. In some cases, took them right to the airport. I mean, especially bad head injuries, we'd get them stable in the, in the field and talk to the neurosurgeons. And it was Salt Lake then, but now they have neurosurgery capability developed it in Idaho Falls. And so in some cases, we'd take the patient right from the backcountry to the air ambulance at the airport and then take them over to Idaho Falls or Salt Lake. So that helicopter was not designed to fly to Salt Lake as fast as what the helicopter, I mean, the airplane could. Oh, uh, it was mainly for backcountry things uh -huh. or taking patients over to Idaho Falls. And sometimes we take them directly to Idaho Falls. Mm -hmm. Okay. Most of the time they came to the hospital. What was the response of these maintenance folks when you went to them to say, we're going to start training you in proper ambulance medical care? Well, we put it a different way. We said, would you like to be trained in popular <laughs> healthcare first aid? And they said they'd love to be. They all, they were, they were very enthusiastic. They enjoyed, they enjoyed it. It was very rewarding. I mean, they saved lives. And so, yeah, no, they, they all. They all enjoyed it and they did a great job. And of the ambulances, you've started with one ambulance. And by the time you left that part of things, um, how many ambulances were being operated here in the in the county? I ran the ambulance service. Um, i trying to remember back when it was shifted over to the to the fire department. Because it, originally it was just a volunteer ambulance service. And then they started paying some of the attendants and then it went to Teton County Fire and EMS. And that's about the time that I said that, you know, it's time to let somebody else take over. And I can't remember exactly when that was. Do you remember how many volunteers you had? I would guess we had probably 20, someplace between 20 and 30, maybe 25, because they took, you know, they took call uh, seven days a week. They would break it up. Uh, it's I think they were took call for 24 hours, seven days a week. So we needed to cover that. And there was always two attendance in the back plus a driver mm -hmm. what a remarkable community to have a complete volunteer service for ambulance yeah it was they did an amazing job mm -hmm. and do you know did any of those people go on to be paramedics paid paramedics and or nurses and yes. in the medical yes. field themselves yep several yep. did okay in fact rusty uh who was one of our earliest volunteers went on to work with fire and became, I think he became the assistant fire chief, uh, but he was the head of 
the volunteer. And at that point, he was paid. Uh, and then he, he left here and went up to uh, Washington State uh, to work. And he runs their ambulance service near uh, well, the big naval base up on off the coast. Mm-hmm. And you said that now you operate out of Driggs. You bought that fixed wing air operation. Correct. And you also have something else going on over there, a little museum where you have certain planes showcased. Well, when I was in the Navy, um, I flew, we did our flight training. We did flight training for three months and flight surgery training for three months. And we did some of the flight surgery and medical training while we were flying. But uh, during the three months that I flew, the little Navy trainer, the T-34 was there. It was all backed up in, in training pilots for Vietnam, for naval aviators. And so I got a chance, along with those of us in my class who had pilot's licenses at the time, and I think there were four of us out of the 12, got to fly the T-28, which is a big 1,500 horsepower uh, trainer, propeller-driven trainer. It was actually designed to be a jet trainer. So I got to fly that, and then I got to do a lot of flying when I was at Patuxent River and various airplanes, usually with test pilot school instructors. So... I was sitting outside the emergency room one day, one summer afternoon, and uh, four T-28s, these trainers, flew over in formation, different colors. They weren't military airplanes, but the Navy was still flying those back then in the late 70s. Um, So they landed at the airport. That's interesting. So I drove out to the airport to see who had flew these airplanes and met these four guys that they'd gotten these airplanes out of the boneyard at Davis Monthan, and they'd restored them completely. They're beautiful. I thought, that's cool. So... I bought a T-28 out of the boneyard and I restored it. And that's what kind of got me hooked. And then we started after that, we restored a Navy jet trainer. And then we restored a a Grumman Albatross amphibian. And then, and it kind of went on from there. Uh, I started a computer uh, software company here in Jackson that did very well. And so we used some of the uh, profits from that company to uh, restore some of these airplanes. And we flew them in air shows and uh, we bought you know, it's planes to teach people how to fly in. And I was a helicopter pilot from way back when, and I bought a little uh, Bell 47, which is the little bubble bell that you saw on the series MASH on TV. You mm-hmm. may, may be too young for MASH. No, no. <laughs> I love uh, MASH. So I kept up my flying skills in the helicopter and, and doing air shows and that sort of thing. Does that helicopter still fly or is it in the, your museum? Every airplane in the museum flies. Oh, it does. I don't think we have a single airplane that's that's not flying. Now they don't fly all the time. Mm-hmm. But they're all you know capable of flying. They're all you know flyable. They're okay. Also- so how many planes do you have over there now? I tell you the same thing. I tell my wife almost enough. <laughs> I love it. We haven't love bought it. any. We've been selling airplanes now rather than buying. Which okay. Is very happy about. We had this agreement where if we should ever get divorced, she gets the front half of the airplane and I get the back half because she knows us. the front half has all the instruments and engines and everything valuable. And all I get is just the tails. <laughs> Keeps us together. And she loves to fly. She's flown with me. Uh, we flew the Grumman Albatross to Australia, in fact. She flies with me all the time. And she flies all the airplanes. I mean, we've got a, uh, an older jet of Citation that we've had for 30 some odd years and she goes to flight safety and she flies the simulator and she flies the airplane. She lands it. She can take it off. If she had to. Something happens to me. You know, I want to make sure she's okay. And she's, she's a good pilot. 
Well, women make just as good of pilots as men do. That's right. They're people just the same way. That's right. Yeah. And and I love, I think it's fabulous that you and your wife have the, um, the interest together to where you guys can fly around the world together like that. I'm just glad that she likes it here in Jackson. I mean, we came to Jackson before we moved here and it was in, in July and in 1970, I guess, mm-hmm. only, bought the, only bought the property and it snowed and it snowed like a foot. And I looked at her and said, you know, you sure want to get into this? And she was a good skier. She loved to ski. We used to go up in the Sierras and ski together. She said, oh, yeah, no, I love it. And uh, she was out yesterday shoveling snow. I mean, you can see the house behind me. That's... <laughs> We, get a lot of we spend a lot of time plowing and shoveling. I, I bet you guys do. I bet you do. She's pretty good with a snowblower. <laughs> hey, Rich, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from a sponsor, and then we're going to come right back. For residents looking to reduce their household waste and become better recyclers, look no further than the Recycling Coach app. Brought to you by Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling. Other things brought to you by Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling is the ability to recycle your mattresses. Those old, dirty, nasty mattresses don't have to go to the landfill anymore. They can now be recycled by Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling. Many other things happen at Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling. You can find out at tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle to download that app and to find out more about what can be done about recycling in this community and your community. Become a better recycler today and download the Recycling Coach app for free. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Welcome back, Rich. I'm so enjoying this conversation. We've talked about all the impact that you've had in in this community when it comes to medical care um, with their ambulance service and then starting up an air ambulance service here as well. Now, you, I want to back up a little bit further to Mm -hmm. when you were living here as a child up to the Korean War with your dad being um, out of the Navy and then going back into the Navy when Korea started up. What was it like living in Kelly, Wyoming during those years? It was great. I'd go out in Ditch Creek and catch a fish, bring it in, mom and cook it. I'd go horseback riding, although my feet kind of stuck straight out. I was only five, um, five, six, and seven. No, it was great. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of great memories. And I'll tell you another interesting story. So when dad sold out to his partner, his partner said, why don't you keep that hayfield it's out there right just to the west. Uh, there was a hay field, maybe I don't know, 20, 30 acres. Um, beautiful view of the Tetons. And dad said, no, no, you should keep this property all together. I don't know if I'll ever came, come back. I sent my dad a picture of George W. Bush delivering the state of the environment speech from the center of that hay meadow. Huh. 
I bet you your dad, he had to have been tickled to death to see that. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And when you were living out there, were wolves a issue at all, or had they been exterminated? I don't think there were any wolves around by then. Mm-hmm. They had all been removed. I do remember, though, going with Dad on horseback and driving the elk out of the hills onto the elk refuge uh, and driving away from our hay piles because we had hay piles that the elk would come in and feed off of, and then we wouldn't have it for our horses. Uh, I think we had a few head of cattle, too, that Dad slaughtered, you know, for me. Um, but many of it was for the horses, and I can remember, you know, driving the elk off of our hay piles, which is what went on back then. I mean, that was one of the main reasons for the elk refuge was to get the elk out of the farmer's fields. Because there was, at that time, a lot of farmers raising cattle. I think they were going up in the hills and, and driving the elk down onto the refuge because they would, wouldn't want to go there. They, they'd just soon go eat the hay. It was probably easier to get to that hay than it was make it over to the elk refuge. Oh, it was nice. It's all stacked in a pile. <laughs> uh, path to least resistance, right? That's right. Yeah. And I'm curious to know with you all starting that ambulance service and you, you were doing the air ambulance, what was the impact to the surrounding communities when, when you all started that? So I'm, I'm going to take a big guess that you didn't just service Jackson Hole. There were probably some other areas that you, you all were helping out as well. Yeah, quite a few. I mean, we flew patients from Montana to Denver. We flew patients from eastern Wyoming to Idaho Falls to Salt Lake. I mean, we flew patients from all over to anywhere. And um, we started off flying pretty much anybody, anytime, anywhere. Uh, but that quickly got very expensive and very unprofitable. I mean, mm-hmm. very unprofitable. So we changed our policy to we would fly anyone, anywhere, anytime, to anywhere who had a life and death matter. I mean, uh, life or limb. And then we'd, we'd find out later if we collect any money. Um, it, but then if, if it wasn't life or limb, then they had to make arrangements. And we'd tell them what it was going to cost. They had to make some arrangements to show us they could pay the bill. And it wasn't much. I mean, we were charging, I think, $20,000, $25,000 to fly a patient from Jackson to Salt Lake or to Denver, uh, you know, with a full flight crew and two uh, flight nurses, well-trained, intensive care nurses trained to take care of people in the air with mm-hmm. all, all the problems go along with that. And and I, I know that you just said it's it's not a lot of money, but to to... And the relationship of being in the world of a plane, that is not a lot of money for what it takes to have a plane fly each hour. But for... Well, and especially when you're talking about you know, any time, day or night. And mm-hmm. we had to have, you know, pilots have to have a certain amount of rest. So we had to have, you know, several, we had five or six pilots at a time, you know, on a payroll that were getting paid whether they flew or not, so that we'd have somebody available when a trip came up, when a flight came up. Mm-hmm. And the same thing went for the flight nurses. I think I sent you a picture of the flight nurses so you could see there was like 20 of them at one point, 15. And would they rotate between being flight nurses and also being um, nurses at the hospital? or Yeah, or... yeah. almost all of them were nurses uh-huh. at the hospital at the same time. I don't think we had anybody working full time except for Paul King, the, the physician's assistant who was organizing it. And the pilots, they were doing it full-time, pretty much full-time, although some of the pilots were also working for Jackson Hole Aviation, doing charter work and flight instruction, things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, quite an impact 
that you and um, your company provided to this community. And, and I certainly appreciate it. And when you sold out the um, Jackson Hole Aviation, did that fixed wing air ambulance service continue or? We moved over to Driggs. Okay. Sold it. So what, since you moved it to Driggs, what replaced the service here? I think when we, we'd already stopped Jackson Hole Air Ambulance when I sold Jackson Hole Aviation. Okay. I don't think we ever flew out. Well, I can't remember. Well, no, actually what happened, it's interesting. Um, So, no, I know we sold Jackson Hole Aviation while we were operating the Air Ambulance Service and we were having trouble getting service, Um, you know, getting maintenance done, getting uh, middle of the night fuel, things like that. And a fellow named Al Hildy came to the office, who's a pilot. And I was doing a flight physical and I was telling him the problems we were having. And um, Al was a very clever guy, a uh, businessman. And I said, why don't you start another FBO in Jackson and maybe we it'll give us better service. And he did. It was called Satellite Arrow. And there was a competing fixed base operation in Jackson for quite a few years until Al had a major medical problem and and. They wound up selling satellite back to Jackson Aviation, and that's about the time we moved over to Driggs. Okay. And when you guys moved to Driggs, were people transported over there if they needed a flight to Salt Lake or Idaho Falls, or was there another service? No, I think I think by then, no. See, what happened was, but when we sold Jackson Hole Aviation or sold stopped flying Jackson Hole Air Ambulance, um, by that time there was two or three airplanes in Salt Lake. There was a helicopter and airplanes in Idaho Falls. There were helicopters and airplanes in Billings and Bozeman. I mean, there were multiple air ambulance services, mm-hmm. so we really didn't have the need for Jackson Hole Air Ambulance anymore. Okay. Let let somebody else do it. <laughs> sure, sure. And they um, all did a good job. They were great. And and now I think we have a, a new air ambulance service here in, in Jackson. I heard that, but they called me several years ago and asked me a few questions, but I don't know what's happened since then. And I I actually I don't do very much work at the hospital anymore. I'm doing pretty much outpatient medicine. I've my office uh, at at the hospital that got torn down when they built a new uh, retirement center. Uh, and so I moved my office to Wilson. So I'm, I'm just a family doctor in Wilson. And so you're still practicing medicine and, and flying yep. your plane part-time. Yep. Yes. Slow, it down. Slow it down. Let the young guys do it. <laughs> well, I think they have, um, quite a ways to catch up to you. Well, they're doing a good job. Will yeah. Smith, Will Smith came in and took over the ambulance service and also the park and he's done a great job. And I think there's several other people helping him now. And during all of this time, what was the connection between the emergency services and what the ski patrollers were doing at Snow King and, and also at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort? And then the connection or the relationship with like the Jenny Lake Climbing Rangers? Well, um, there was really no association between the ski patrol, either at Snow King or at the village and the ambulance service, other than we would pick up patients at the village and drive them to, you know, to the hospital. They were the medical coordination for the ski patrollers was done through people at, at the uh, Teton Village Clinic mm-hmm. and also through their own expertise. I mean, they've been doing this for years and years. Uh, and the generally, generally climbing rangers really didn't do, they didn't, they did some medical, you know, evacuation, but they were, they were part of the park service ambulance service or park service medical care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they did some cross training with our, our EMTs. Um, and we were the medical advisors, mainly 
one of the places where we were very active was in helicopter rescues. We were involved in when they started the short haul rescue um, and weighing the risk of rescuing people. Um, one of the things we insisted upon was that we didn't take helicopters into the backcountry, especially in adverse weather late in the day, you know, at nightfall might be a problem. You can't fly helicopters at night. They're not really, unless you have night vision goggles, they didn't exist back then. And making sure that we always weighed the risk versus the benefit of picking people up. So we cleared every flight. And, you know, in some cases, they we insisted they take them out by ground, not by helicopter. Hmm. They're still doing that. Oh, oh, I would think so. I have a curious question for you. Do you know much about the history of ambulance service here in the United States of how it all came to came about? Well, I, I've got some interesting, interesting history. I don't know where it all started, but one of my medical student uh, buddies, he and I roomed together before I got married at Baylor. He worked for, uh, in Texas especially, and this is true all over Texas, the funeral homes ran the ambulance services. No kidding. Yeah. And because, you know, they, I, I'm not sure why, except that they wound up, you know, in some cases, the funeral homes, they had a something that looked like an ambulance that you could put somebody in. And usually they were used to haul bodies back to the funeral home. But then they decided, well, why can't we take living people to the hospital? And I mm -hmm. think that's one of the reasons why they got involved with. But in Houston, I know they were in, in, in quite a place, a few places in Texas. And I know on the East Coast. But anyway, Dick would say that uh, his name was Dick Stastny. And Dick would say, you know, sometimes they had to tone down the funeral directors because they would say that, well, you know, at the, at the bad accident, if you bring back the bodies, we always get paid. But if you bring back the living or take the living to the hospital, lots of times we don't get paid. So, yeah. <laughs> so there were some amusing things there. And maybe some not so amusing. <laughs> yeah, I think it just depends on how you look at it. I'm sure it was it was all in good jest. Yep. And then uh, more and more ambulance services got hooked up with fire. Uh -huh. As fire, fire and EMS kind of went together. They were volunteer services originally and uh, not using the same equipment, but firemen needed basic first aid, basic, uh, you know, trauma type training, as well as all the stuff that's involved with putting out a fire. Yeah, I could certainly see that for sure. Well, Dr. Sugden, this has been a fascinating conversation and, and I so appreciate you sharing your time and sharing your history and your story. Uh, thank you for your service in, to our country and in, in the Navy and for your vision of what our community needed um, for trauma care and ambulance and air ambulance. Um, you certainly helped pave the, pave the road to where we can have a, a safe community or at least um, a higher level of medical care in our community. We enjoyed it. It was it was it was challenging and it was rewarding. One of the reasons I went into medicine was because uh, you're just constantly challenged. You never know it all, uh, especially in family medicine, where we deal with a you know a little bit of we know a, a lot about a little about a lot of things as opposed to a lot about little things. Um, but adding all that um, emergency medical care, the air ambulance, and so forth made it it was challenging. It was rewarding. I mean, we got to do a lot of a lot of uh, very rewarding things. I'm, I, I can certainly see that. And, and it's very much appreciated. And I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your story here today. You bet. We'll have to tune into your, some of your other podcasts and listen to them. Please do get out there and share some of those episodes Okay. and keep the snow clear of your house.
<laughs> I will. <laughs> Fortunately, it snowed for a few days, so. <laughs> yeah, I hope we get some but soon. <laughs> it's work to live in Jackson, and it's one of the things I think that, you know, lets us live old, get old gracefully, and at the same time, get old. It It is a little bit of work, for sure. Well, thank you, Dr. Sugden. You bet. Take care. To learn more about Dr. Rich Sugden and his life right here in the hole, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com episode number 174. Thank you, everybody who helps keep this podcast on the air. I so appreciate you tuning in, sharing, get out there and read something that invigorates the mind and challenges you to think a little bit. Thank you to Michael Morey, who does the editing and marketing for this podcast. He has his own business for editing podcasts. So if you're thinking of creating your own podcast, get in touch with Michael Morey. He can help you out. Trust me, it is worth it. And also thank you to my wife, Laura, who I love with all my heart, and my boys, Lewis and William, who you will always be in my heart as well. Thank you so much. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.